Good morning. And I had someone ask me in the parking lot if I have any uh, tan lines, and I said no. Uh, I go to the beach, and my goal is SPF 70. I'm Irish. I burn easily, and I succeeded in not getting burnt at all. So I still was on the beach, but if you take care of yourself, you can be safe on the beach if you don't want a sun sunburn, which I don't like sunburns. So I was at the beach, all right? It really happened. I didn't hide out of my hotel, but... I was very careful, bought a really cool little hat that covered me up and stuff like that. Okay. Hey, we're in week 18 of our chapter-by-chapter chapter verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, the king and his kingdom. And you know, I, I cannot think of a better conversation to have as we gather as a church body than to talk about our king and to talk about the kingdom that he established 2,000 years ago. Amen. Seriously, right? I mean, and currently right now we are unpacking the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, a sermon on the mount. Jesus' radical, countercultural manifesto about what life in his kingdom is all about. And Jesus begins this sermon by describing the character of those who live in his kingdom. He says that they are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, the pure in heart, that they are the peacemakers. That there are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are the merciful. And there are those who are persecuted because of the life that they live and the Lord that they love. And then Jesus talks about the influence and impact that his followers will have throughout the generations. Because they are the salt of the earth. And they are the light of the world. And remember, being the salt of the earth is about, it's about the fruit of the Spirit. It is about the noticeably different life that we will live, a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the life that we'll live in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the marketplace, on social media, in our world, a different life. And being the light of the world is about the truth that we share and the Savior we point to. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world and it takes both for us to have the impact, the influence that God wants. Question in the last few weeks, have you strived to be saltier? Have you strived to be a saltier and a lightier? I don't know if that's a word, but I made it a word. Have you strived to be a saltier, living that life, distinct life in the world, and a lightier Jesus follower? If so, awesome. Keep on doing it. If not, there's still time, right? Thing with God, every day is a new day, right? Every day the sun rises, every day you wake up, breathe breath into your lungs and have a brand new day. This brings us to Matthew 5, 17 through 20 and our conversation for this morning. Do not even think. Here we go. Do not think. Someone say, do not think. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, we 
We come into your presence, God. We are grateful for your love. We're grateful that you are the same God. God, that you hear our prayers now just like you did back then. God, you heal hearts now. You free captives now. And God, I pray right now that your word will come alive. And God, that you'll teach us something that we can take out into the world and live lives more effectively for you. God, I ask you you would help me to present this text in a way that brings you honor and brings you glory. Amen. Okay, buckle up. All right, we're going we're gonna to dive down deep today and hopefully come up wet. Amen. All right, it, we're, I'm not giving you a spoon feeding you ice cream today. We're going to eat some steak or prime rib, medium rare. I'm telling you, it's going to be good. All right. Now, now, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is a very important text for us to dive into because it answers the question about what the relationship between the Christian and the law, between the Christian and the Old Testament should be. Like, is the Old Testament law binding on the Christian? If so, how much of it's binding? Do we have to obey the Old Testament laws? There were 613 of them. 365 negative commands, don't do this. 249 positive commands, do this. Does the Old Testament have any value at all for us who live under the New Covenant? I mean, if we are New Testament people, why even bother the Old Testament? I mean, maybe we should just abandon it altogether. Again, important questions. And ones that Jesus' followers have struggled with since the day of Pentecost to this very day. In fact, there was a, I think he's a crack theologian. Well, not crack, not that kind of crack. <laughs> I need a drink of water after that. That's, so many good words have got taken away that we can't use anymore. He wasn't a great theologian. His name was Macronin. And, and he created a Bible where he got rid of the Old Testament and got rid of references in the New Testament to the Old Testament. And he didn't actually think that the Old Testament God and the New Testament, we sang he is the same God. He said, you're not the same God. You were a mean God then. You're a nice God. Okay, he, I, I don't know if he sang that song, uh, but it probably was at his church, right? And, and, and said, hey, just get rid of the Old Testament. And last week I, I shared uh, that a very prominent, very popular uh, pastor of a mega, mega church said recently that the Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. He claimed that Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch Christianity from Jewish scriptures. And my friends, he said, we must do the same. By the way, that's not true. In fact, the New Testament, 1,604 times refers to 1,276 Old Testament passages, right? If you take references to the Old Testament out of the New Testament, not much will be left. Again, understanding what the relationship should be between a Jesus follower and the Old Testament is important. The good news, Jesus gives us an answer, one we can understand if we're willing to dive down deep and look at it. And I've been diving down deep for, for weeks on this text. And here's the deal. Many Jesus followers today have a pretty low opinion of the Old Testament law, even though they're no longer living under it. Many Christians consider the law, the Old Testament, they feel like and they believe that the law is bad and grace is good. That the law was an unwanted burden that people had to carry. That the law was just a necessary evil until the time of Jesus. 
And they felt like, man, I'm so glad that all those rules and regulations are over and done with forever. In fact, I don't even know why God put those things in there to begin with. Question, so what is your attitude towards the Old Testament and the law of Moses? Have you ever wondered how people actually lived under it felt? Like, did they see the law as an unwanted burden that they had to carry? That they were forced to endure? Answer, not even close. In fact, you will not find one example in all the Old Testament of anybody whining or complaining about the terrible burden the law was to live under. In fact, you will find the exact opposite. Just a few passages, right? The first is in Psalm 1. We don't know the author. He says, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or take seat in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season and whose leaves does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 32. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words I've solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life. By them you will live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. Joshua, here's what he thought, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Job said this in Job 23, 12. I got the references there and they're all on, the, on our notes today. Here's what Job said. I've not departed from the commands of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. The psalmist said, David in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And then Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, we don't know who wrote it. Many think it's Ezra. I kind of agree. He was into God's Word a lot. But it's basically 176 verses of some guy just declaring how awesome God's Word is. Here's just a taste. I rejoice and fall in your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. As one rejoices, they, I saw a couple of billboards, the Powerball and the mega thing is up to like 300 million, right? He says, you know what? I rejoice in the law as much as I rejoice if I hit the Powerball last night. He says this, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I'll never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Then he goes on, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on day and night. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. He goes on, I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Then he goes on. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. 
I wait for your salvation, Lord, and follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. And Paul, a guy who lived under the law before he met Jesus, said this in Romans 7, verse 12. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. I understand if you were to grab a cup of coffee with someone who lived under the Old Testament law and say, hey, I don't like that law. How do you feel about it? They would say, the law is my delight. The law makes me like a tree planted by streams of water. The law, when I meditate on it and obey it, I'm prosperous and successful. The law refreshes my soul, makes me wise, gives joy to my heart and light to my eyes. The law has preserved my life. The law is sweeter than honey to my mouth. The law is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The law is holy, right, and good. I treasure the law more than my daily bread. I rejoice in the law more than great riches. I I love the law greatly. Understand, we do not have to make the law look bad to make Jesus look good. Amen? And I got to tell you, before I dug into this deeply, I kind of poo-pooed on the law a little bit. And you know what? You don't have to do that. Those who lived on it, just it's incredible how they feel about it. Now let's begin attacking those four verses that make up our text. I'm going to do four statements, one for each verse. The statements are, do not even think until heaven and earth disappear. It all matters, and it's always been about the heart. Do not even think. Someone say, do not even think. Do not even think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the way this verse is constructed in original language, it carries a much stronger meaning than simply do not think. Have you ever been looking for a parking space and maybe came across a sign that said this, don't even think of parking here, right? <laughs> right? And, and that's kind of the idea that Jesus is wanting to get across. Do not even let that kind of thinking enter your mind that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That word abolish is the Greek word uh, kataluo. It, it means to destroy, overflow, tear down, demolish like a building. It's used in Matthew 24, verse 2, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He says, not one stone will be left standing. Everyone will be thrown down. Got the luo. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 27, 40, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the crowd is mocking him. You are going to destroy, Cataleo, the temple, build it in three days. Save yourselves. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Do not even think that I've come to destroy, to overthrow, to tear down, to demolish the law of the prophets. Now, now why would someone put a sign up that says, don't even think about parking here? Because he knows that someone's what? Going to think about parking there, right? And that's the same reason Jesus says in Matthew 517, don't even think that I've come to abolish all the prophets. Why did Jesus say that? Because he knows that's exactly what some people were already thinking. And not without cause. I understand for 30 years, Jesus lived in relative obscurity. And then after baptism, he burst onto the scene in a powerful way. Healing the sick, casting out demons, and telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Eating with sinners and outcasts rather than hanging out with the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's confronting the religious elite, pointing out their pride, pointing out their arrogance, pointing out their hypocrisy. 
and calling out their misunderstanding and misinterpreting of the Scriptures. Now, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the Pharisees have been around for a couple hundred years. And listen, their interpretation of the law became the official interpretation of the law. It basically became the Bible of people in that day. And understand, Jesus taught the people the truth of God in a way they had never heard before. And in fact, when he finishes this sermon, Matthew records these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, but because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Understand, as Jesus unveils his radical manifesto about what life in his kingdom is all about, the people are wondering, hey, hey, did Jesus come on as a revolutionary to begin some brand new thing? And the religious elite are afraid. <laughs> They're afraid that not only is Jesus going to tear down the law of Moses, but he's going to tear down the religious system that they've created that gave them both power and position. Get it? Good. I mean, that's what most revolutionary leaders do, Right? I mean, you come into power, you sever all ties with the past, do everything you can to undo and abolish your traditions that have gone on before. Kind of like when a, a new guy comes to the White House, right? Day one, he sits at the table with a bunch of things he's probably never read. Executive order after executive order undoing the past administration. Hey, there's a new guy in town, and I'm getting rid of everything. They thought Jesus was doing that very thing, tearing down everything they had built. And Jesus wants to make it clear that, hey, that's not what I'm about. I've not come to tear it down. I've come to fulfill it. And that's the Greek word, plerao. It means to complete, to carry out to the full, to fill to the top, to carry through to the end. And Matthew likes that word, uses it more than any of the gospel writer. He's actually used it six times already in this gospel. Four times in the birth narrative saying, hey, what happened in Jesus' birth fulfilled prophecy. And then after Jesus was baptized by John and he said, this is to fulfill all righteousness, he uses it again. When Jesus begins preaching the kingdom, Matthew says his preaching of the kingdom is fulfilling prophecy. He would go on to use it nine more times in this letter. He loves using this word, plerajo, in regards to Jesus. Understand, when Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying that he is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. He said that everything in the law and the prophets was always pointing to me. He said in John 5, 39 and 40, he said this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And in them they found rules to follow. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Like, it's about me and you can't even see me when you're reading it. Now, in order for us to understand how Jesus fulfilled the law, it's helpful to look at the various types of law that we find in the Old Testament. Basically, four categories. You have Dietary laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral law. And, and I have asterisks behind these because you can see that these are not binding, right? You know, those three are not binding on a Christian. And let's talk about these. You had dietary laws. And also, these laws, like many in the Old Testament, were about setting Israel, setting God's people apart from the world. They're intended to set them apart as a separate and distinct people. And so the law of Moses, you had, for example, animals divided into clean and unclean animals. Clean animals you could eat, unclean you could not eat. We read in Leviticus chapter 11, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, 
These are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chooses cud. Now to be clean, to be eaten, they have to have both. Which brings us to one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Deuteronomy 14.8. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hook, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat the meat or touch their carcasses. I don't know about you, but I am quite fond of the dead carcass of a pig. <laughs> I mean, can you say bacon, ribs, pulled pork, right? Also read this dietary law in Leviticus 11, 9 and 10. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales, but all creatures in the sea that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the living creatures in the water, you're to regard as unclean. That means no shrimp, no oysters, no scallops, no crabs steamed with Old Bay seasoning, no Maryland crab cakes, no shrimp boils, no lobster or lasting king crab legs, unless they're dipped in melted butter. And I had plates full at Krabby Mike's, man. I was, I, I, maybe nine times. Then you get long, you go long enough, your family's done eating, they'll begin to peel it for you and just hand you the meat, right? And, and uh, my goal is always eat so much crab, you don't want any more crab, and I achieve my goal. Okay, so how did Jesus fulfill the dietary laws? By teaching that true cleanliness is about the heart. Matthew, Mark chapter 7. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into their hearts, and, but into their stomachs, and that out the body. And saying this, Jesus decried, declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These make you unclean, Jesus says, not eating a pork chop, right? That's not what makes you unclean. So the dietary laws are no longer binding on the Christian. Now, you can keep them if you want to, right? And you may want to cook your pork very well, right? Because I think that's one of the reasons he, he said that, because he knew that pork can be hard to cook, and if you don't cook it well, it's not, you could get sick from that. Now, civil laws are basically judicial laws that govern the nation of Israel. Again, to make them distinct, right? Set them apart. And all societies need laws, right? They have laws. I mean, without laws, uh, with people being able to do whatever they want to do, without experiencing any consequences, there would be chaos and unrest and violence everywhere. Like, how would you like to drive on the road with no laws whatsoever? It'd be dangerous, right? Or live in a city without any laws or police to enforce those laws. So in the law of Moses, we find Laws regarding murder and kidnapping and injuring another person. Laws about what's required if your bull gores a neighbor. <laughs> or if you dig a pit and don't cover it up and your neighbor's donkey falls into it, right? What do you do? Laws about the establishment of cities of refuge. Laws about taking care of the orphans and the widows and the foreigners in the land. Now, how did Jesus fulfill the civil law? Answer by establishing his kingdom and a new people. Now understand, the Old Testament law and the prophets pointed to a time when God would establish a new people, a people who would be governed not by external laws, but by their inner spirit. Amen? Does that make sense? How he fulfilled that? He's going to put the, the law, as he says in Jeremiah, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. He said in Ezekiel that 
I'll remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Paul talks about how you show that you're a letter from Christ, a result of a ministry written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And then you have the ceremonial laws. Laws that require offering animal sacrifices at the tabernacle, later at the temple, in order to approach God and be, have right standing with Him. Laws celebrating certain feasts like the Passover, so God's people will never forget how God had moved powerfully in their lives. Observing certain rules meant to distinguish Israel from their pagan neighbors. Rules about clothing and hair and beards and tattoos and other such restrictions. Like in Leviticus 19.27, do not cut the hair at the side of your head, or cut or clip off the edge of your beard. Like, let your beard grow and don't shave the side of your head. Have you ever seen a Hasidic Jew, right? What do they have? They have long flowing sideburns that curl up and their beard grows because of Leviticus 19, verse 27. But we're not bound by the ceremonial laws because Jesus is the fulfillment of them all. Paul said in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore do not anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, with regard to certain religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Okay? So, so, hey, those things had a purpose, but they're just a shadow, and everything was pointing to Christ. And even the sacrifices that were made for our sin, right, with the high priest and the temple and the sacrifices were all pointing to Christ. And Jesus fulfilled them all. Many of us have been reading Hebrews this past week, and the law and the sacrifice are all over the place. Check out what we read in Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worship would have been cleansed once for all. And we no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, each priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Is this the time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool? For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Amen? Amen. And as Christians, we do have some rules about our clothing. Paul talks about it in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. He says, you want to talk about what kind of clothes I want you to wear? Here's what you're to put on. Don't go to people's case because they don't dress the way you, they, you think they should. He says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. It's the thread which binds them all together in perfect unity. See, that's our clothing. That's what we're to put on. Moral law. Now, Jesus fulfilled it by keeping the moral law perfectly. However, the moral law is still binding. Why is that? Because the moral law 
is based on God's character. And here's the deal. God does not want his people to live in a way that violates his character. So, for example, when the Bible talks about not bearing false witness, in other words, don't lie, it's because God is truthful and he does not lie. And he does not want us living in a way that violates his character. When it says in Scripture not to commit adultery, it's because he is faithful and he wants us to be faithful. When it says don't murder, it's because God is the author of life and he wants us to respect life. When he says don't be unforgiving, it's because he's forgiving. When he says don't be unloving, it's because he's loving. When it says don't be unjust, it's because he is just. So that's the moral aspect of the law. Again, God says, here's my character, here's who I am, now go out and live in a way that honors that. And therefore, when we live out our lives in a way that dishonors his character, we're violating the moral law. And that's why the moral law is still binding, because righting is still right, and wrong is still wrong, and God's character still matters. Get it? Good. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, before we move on to verse 18 in the second statement, I want to briefly mention three primary purposes of the law in regard to sin, okay? Understand, the Old Testament never taught that you will be saved by keeping the law. Never taught that anywhere. That's what the Pharisees taught, and they were the guys in power. They set the rules, and they're the ones that said, you know what? To be right with God, you have to obey the rules. But understand, Abraham was justified by faith before the law. And after the law, Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 2.4 that the righteous will live by, by faith. And, and what is going on with the law, one of the primary purposes of the law, not regard to sin, but is that when God delivered his people from Egypt, right? He says, I'm the Lord your God. I delivered you. I rescued you. You're now my people. And then he goes, here's how I want, as my people, here's how I want you to behave. Here are the things that I expect of you. And so the law was a guide for this community that God was forming. Uh, the law was, would identify them as a distinct people in the world. The law was designed to set them apart in the ways where people could clearly recognize that these people belong to God. All right? That's like the overarching value of the law, right? Here's the guide. I delivered you. Here's how you live in a way that honors me. Here's what I expect of you. Now, in regard to sin, the law had three purposes. Number one, to explain what sin is. Now, now some things we, for the most part, know are wrong, like murder, like taking stuff that's not ours. I mean, when a three-year-old takes another kid's toys and he hides it, why does he hide it? Because he knows it was wrong. Some things we know are wrong. Some things we have to learn. And Paul talks about this very thing in Romans 7, verse 7. He says this, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And Paul's admitting, hey, I used to go around and I was envying who other people were and what other people had, and I didn't even know that was wrong. Like we might instinctively know that it's wrong to murder, but... We might not know, as Jesus says later in Matthew 5, that it's wrong to harbor bitterness, to harbor anger, to harbor hatred towards another person, that it's wrong to think in our heart or say with our mouth, you are a fool. And all about you, my first instinct when someone hurts me 
Does it get even? I want payback. I need to be taught to forgive those who hurt me and pray for for my enemies. So one of the primary purposes of the law in regards to sin is to explain what sin is. The second is to expose sin in us. Like we read the law and it cuts us open. Shows us who we really are. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, the the law is like a a spiritual thermometer when it comes to spiritual sickness. Like a a thermometer, and man, for like two years, they were like in her face or in her forehead all along, right? You know, 36.5, that that wouldn't be Fahrenheit. That'd be bad news for Fahrenheit, right? I don't know where you've been hanging out in a freezer or something, right? But it it can tell you you're sick, but it can't do anything about healing your sickness, right? And see, the law can't cure us. It can only expose the fact that we're sick. Now, the Pharisees had the opposite view, right? They thought the law could cure us if we just obeyed a little bit better, right? If we just obeyed a little bit better, then God would come back, right? That's not not the case. Paul says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, So the law... It, it, it uh, explains what sin is, exposes sin us, and third, it expresses our need for a Savior, right? And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. He says, hey, you know what? There's things I want to do that I don't do. And there are things that I don't want to do, and I find myself doing those very things. And then you know what Paul says? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul goes on to say a few verses later, for what the law was powerless to do because it was, it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Explains what it is, exposes it, and then, hey, you know what? I can't keep this. I need, I need a savior. I need Jesus. That's Matthew 5.18. That's our first statement. And don't worry, the next three will go real, real fast. Until heaven and earth disappear. But truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Literally, Jesus is saying, not one iota, which is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. That's where that phrase comes from. Or one horn. And that was the tiniest mark that distinguished one Hebrew letter from another Hebrew letter. Kind of like you can have you got a straight stick, you put a dot on it, right? Is it an L? Oh, now it's an I, right? And he's saying like the smallest thing. He's saying the law is as, as enduring as the earth, that none of it will pass away, not one iota, until they are all fulfilled, until everything is accomplished. What does it mean when Jesus said until everything is accomplished? Does it mean when he went to the cross? Or does it mean the end of the world when he returns? I think it's kind of both. On the cross, Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the Old Testament law, and he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about how the Messiah would die. However, some prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. Therefore, the law and the prophets remain until the end of time when every prophecy will be fulfilled. 
Not only that, the law remains until the end of time because there are those who are still under the law because they have not yet come to Jesus. See, we're either under Jesus or we're under the law. And being under the law is not a good thing. Paul said this in Galatians 3, 10 and 11. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, curses anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So the law is enduring. And the law has value until heaven and earth disappear. Paul said that that all scriptures inspired by God talked about the Old Testament and said that it's useful. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us what is right. And God uses it to prepare us for every good work, right? Paul said in Romans 15.4 that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us in the way that we are to live. Do not even think that though heaven and earth disappear, it all matters. I understand, not only do Christians need to believe in the Bible and stand on it as a matter of principle, they also need to obey it and act on it, which is the ultimate test whether or not we believe something or not. And that is what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 5.19. Therefore, therefore, since the law is enduring, therefore, since every iota will remain until the end of time, therefore, since I came not to abolish but to fulfill the law, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And understand, here's the BL, here's the bottom line of what Jesus is communicating here is that following all of God's commands are important. In fact, he said in Matthew 28, right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Everything Jesus commands are important. And listen, this helps us This supports Jesus' claim that he did not come to do away with any of the law, but to fulfill all of the law. Jesus kept the fullness of the law as God had given it, not as the scribes and Pharisees who warped it, added to it, and neglected the weightier matters, which he calls them out for in Matthew 23, shortly before they nailed him to a cross. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You neglected the more important matters of the law. So Jesus said, hey, you know what? Some commands are are more important than others. However, None are to be neglected. Some are more important, but none are to be neglected. Get it? Good. Stick with me. Now we can have the same problem today, right? We might consider some commands to be important while others are trivial and therefore can be neglected, ignored, and disobeyed. Like, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Big deal, right? Big deal. We need to keep those. But lying, coveting, Not tithing, not serving, not forgiving, not sharing our faith, eh, not as big of a deal. See, we have a tendency to be obedient to the easier commands and minimize their importance. 
Let me say it again. We have a tendency to be obedient to the easier commands, but to minimize the importance of the ones we find hard to follow. Or the ones we simply do not want to follow, right? See, we tend to pick and choose, focus on the, on the teachings that matter most to us, and disregard the ones we'd rather not deal with. I'm sure the Bible does not give us that option, right? They're all important. We can't pick and choose. I, I, I'll obey that one. I won't obey this one. 1 John 2, 9, 2, 4 says this. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Then I even think, though heaven and earth pass away, it all matters. And finally, it's always been about the heart. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And listen, this was a jaw-dropping moment for everybody sitting on that hill listening to Jesus. The people are thinking, how can this be? How can I be more righteous than the best rule capers there's ever been? And the religious leader thinking, how dare you, Jesus, even suggest that anyone could be as righteous or surpass our righteousness? Okay, what is, like, what is Jesus talking about here? And maybe we should understand it because it seems like to be a big deal, right? Entering the kingdom of heaven? Anybody want to enter it? I like what John Stott writes in his commentary on the S of M, Sermon on the Mount. Lean in. We're about done. I'm not kidding you. Christian righteousness surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. It's not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping 240 commandments when the best Pharisee may only have a score of 230. (laughs) No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. Pharisees were content with external and formal obedience. A rigid conformity to the law, the righteousness that is pleasing to God is an inward righteousness of mind and motive. But the Lord looks at the heart. It is a new heart righteousness, which the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel foresaw as one of the blessings of the Messianic age. Now, this deep obedience, which is a righteousness of the heart, is possible only in those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and now indwells them. See, it's a righteousness of the heart. And when, when we become a Christian, God gives us a new heart, right? He gives us a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. And listen, in the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus gives six examples of that deeper righteousness of the heart that he expects of those who love him. Examples that, topics that spark controversy in his day. Murder, divorce, adultery, oaths, retaliation, and love. For each of these, he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Now notice he didn't say it is written. He said, you heard it said. And I think what he's doing, he's zeroing in on the interpretation of the Pharisees. And they misinterpret it and misapply to God's law. You've heard it said, but, but I say to you. See, God cares about our heart. The heart is right, right? If the inside is clean, the outside will become clean, right? You know, external things don't make us right with God. It's the heart that matters. Okay. I made a slide this morning because I'm like, I'm kind of puking on you guys this morning. 
not, not in a real way, but, you know, this is a lot of stuff, and I know it. It's online. You can listen to it again. And this morning I go, okay, what? I just had to fire hose. You know, I've been studying this for weeks because I really didn't understand it well. And, and I want to because I don't want to share something I don't really understand. And I got to understand it. And uh, it's important. So what? Here, here, here's what I think we can take home. You're like, okay, gosh, Steve, my head's hurting. I zoned out like, hey, good morning, Maple Grove. I've been gone since then, right? You know, but, but I make this this morning. The Old Testament has great value for us today, right? It does. Jesus loved it. Jesus quoted it. You know, Jesus had a great passion for it, and so did all the apostles, right? Don't diss the Old Testament. The law was never intended to bring salvation. That was never, ever its purpose, right? Never. Much of the Old Testament law is no longer binding on Jesus followers, right? I mean, you're going to have friends who want to, you're going to talk about the Bible being a Christian and go, well, hey, you have a tattoo. And it says, well, guess what? That's part of the ceremonial law that no longer applies to us, right? That was to set God's people apart. He has other ways to set us apart now, mainly by our attitude and our love and the fruit of the Spirit, right? And, and, and this one is really important. That Jesus is, for, and I think that's what he's getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's forming a new community, the church, you know, that just as he delivered Israel from bondage, right, from slavery, he has delivered us, he's redeemed us, he's made us his people. And he says, hey, as my people, as people who live under the new covenant, this is how you're to behave. This is what it looks like. You're not, good, you're not to look like the world looks like. Here are the ways you're to behave because he's forming this new community to go out in the world and live a distinct life so people think we're awesome? No, what? For his glory and for the world's good. Right? The world needs to see us living out our faith, behaving the way that Jesus wants us to. And we have the Spirit, right? And when we come to Christ and surrender to him in faith, repentance, and baptism, it says our sins are forgiven and we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to evict us, you know? Like, hey, Steve, that's a wrong attitude you have right now. That's the wrong way to treat people. That's, a, that's, a, that's not a good, that's some stinking thinking, Steve, right? The Holy Spirit's there to help me live this life in the world. He wants this new community. God's always, it's the same thing. He called the people in Exodus, delivered them, and says, hey, you're not my people. Now I, I want to display you to the world. And, and through you, draw people to me. New Testament, the same exact thing. It's the same program. It really hasn't changed. And that's all I have to say about that. I appreciate your attention. And we do record these things. I know it's a lot. But this really is important. And I think those takeaways, man, are really important right there. Just take those away right there. You know, and I'm going to pray us into our song. We're going to take communion. And what we're going to do, we have the various stations. You can go grab communion. It's where we collect our offering. It's where we have our compassion buckets. Um, you can do that online or we drop in a bucket. We put in a few bucks in there. And we actually have a good chunk of change that the compassion team is going to figure out, hey, you know, you know we, we have a couple thousand dollars from our compassion buckets that needs to stop sitting in the bank and <laughs> needs to be helping some people out in our community. And, and we're going to figure out a way to do that and, and because we want to make a difference in a world that, you know, that, that shows people the love of Christ. And so... Grab your communion, and if you would just hold it, and then I'm going to come back and we'll take it together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this time we have. And God, I thank you for 
everyone just paying attention, Lord. And, and Lord, I'm so grateful, Lord. I thank you for the law, God. Forgive me for the times I kind of was like down on the law, not realizing how awesome it was. And God, I pray that you will form us into this new community, Lord, and that we will strive to behave in the way that you want us to for your glory and for the world's good, because they need us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.